Our scripture reading for this morning comes from two places, uh, one place in the Old Testament and one in the New. And first from the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord to us. Well, good morning, everybody, and good morning, Bethany, and to those online, a special welcome as well. My name is Jeff Cuse. Um, I am a tender here at Bethany, also a professor at Seattle Pacific University, um, and uh, every once in a while, I'll get pulled off the bench to be with you. This is great. This morning in our series, Constant, as we've been going through looking at the heartbeat of hope within Scripture, we are going to take a look at the question of justice. Now, this is not an easy task. It's a very big word that we're tackling this morning. And as we look at it together, be open to how you're hearing that word, what you've heard about it before, what it's done for you and with you as you've heard about justice and the calls for justice and let's listen together as the Holy Spirit works with us in these texts in particular as we look at Micah and we look at Luke. What is God calling Bethany to right now in this question of justice? Um, the, the title that I put for the sermon, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Humility, is actually a play on a title from writer Dave Edgar's debut novel uh, some years back. And I want to use that as a way to frame the direction I'm hoping to go this morning, which is that justice will cause heartbreak, it will cause work, 
It will cause us to stagger in a dominant culture and ultimately, ultimately, the voice by which the embodiment of justice will speak is gonna be humility. The voice by which the embodiment of justice speaks is humility. So as we get started, Don read for us from Micah 6.8 this morning as we, this very famous passage uh, where we hear to, the call to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And in this passage, Micah is situated in this three-part call to justice, this deep prophetic call to justice, but also a call to righteousness. In order to do justice, we must be righteous people, and we must turn and face God. This threefold mishpat, shadek, um, this idea of turning and facing God and become holy people is necessary. A, a, little, far, a little, uh, little ways away from here in Green Lake, um, over on Bertona and 3rd Avenue West at the base of Queen Anne, stands what I think by many people's definition of biblical scholarship um, is this presence that is attentive to the verse Matt, Micah 6, 8 in ways that peop, none of us probably don't even understand. Because over there um, on the corner of Bertona and 3rd Avenue West is the welcome sign to Seattle Pacific University where I teach. And that sign has on the back side of it, Matthew 6, 8. Now this sign is on the corner and the back side of it where the verse is, is pushed up against a building. And so a lot of students and a lot of people don't see it. It's just, you're kind of running around, there's bushes around there and things like that. But like silent sentinels of, of devotion, there are three rhododendron bushes that are in front of this verse 24-7. They are there right now in front of Matthew 6-8. Rain, snow, sunshine, inclement weather, they are there and been there for years in front of this verse, these rhododendron plants. And this in many ways ennobles what I think some people have stopped on the act of justice being. If we just stand in front of the scripture, stare at it, then that'll be enough. And that obviously is not enough. And for many people in churches, the way that we've approached the scriptures has been like these rhododendron plants, just sitting there, staring at this passage and not moving, not acting, not doing something with it. And what we're gonna see today is how important it is to move beyond merely staring at these texts that we're looking at and doing something with them is a definition of justice in our time, to act. When I came to Seattle Pacific as a freshman, I was an undergraduate there, and this is kind of the divine justice, is that um, now that I'm a professor, I can't skip my own classes like I was when I was a student. So, so, I, so I'm back there at SPU, but when I was an undergraduate way back when, my family loaded up in our 72 VW camper van, um, and we put in my hot air popcorn popper, my new electric typewriter, um, and a quilt that my mother had made, and she had called the university residence life department to get the size of the bed to make a quilt. And I was like, how am I gonna put a quilt and look cool as a freshman in a dorm? Um, but I, but, it was, but I, I brought this quilt, brought everything with me, and we went up to the top of Queen Anne Hill to a very famous park that many of you probably know in Seattle, which is Cary Park. Cary Park has this gorgeous view, and you'll see a picture of it right here, gorgeous expansive view of downtown Seattle. And it's a very famous place where people will go. They get a picture taken there. It's an, oftentimes you'll see people running around up there and you'll see people from homecoming in beautiful clothes, but it's pouring rain, but they want a picture in front of it anyway. Sometimes Mount Rainier appears, sometimes it doesn't. 
And for years, as I have been in Seattle, um, and I've gone to Cary Park, one thing that has been uh, always perplexed me is this statue, this piece of art that you see there from the artist Doris Chase in 1971. It's these two metal blocks that are on top of each other with holes through them. And people run, and they play, and they get pictures in front of them, things like that. And one time when I was by, I looked at a plaque at the base of it, and the title of the piece is Changing Forms. Changing Forms. And I thought, well, this is a very strange title for something made of steel, um, obviously put into concrete and not moving, but to call it Changing Forms seemed rather odd. But over the decades that I've lived here, over the decades of looking down on that city, I realized that the artist was not naming the statue itself, the sculpture itself, as Changing Forms. She was naming our world. Our world is a series of changing forms. It is changing all the time in rapid fashion. In many ways, our time is defined by change. And what this sculpture is trying to do is, what is the vantage point by which we have a still point in an ever-changing world by which to see things, rightly, when things are changing so rapidly? Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a speaker on our campus who declared, rather blithely, but declared that 2016 was probably the worst year in modern history and started to list off the reasons why he thought so. We have continued wars in the Middle East. The tragic lives of countless Syrian refugees populate our news and, and ask us questions about how we accept refugees into our own country. We look at the U.S. and we realize that America now has 25% of the world's incarcerated population. One in four people in the world is in a prison and in the United States. And a majority of those people who are incarcerated are African-American males. The question of racial injustice, the tensions of race and ethnicity in our time, the economic disparity that continues to grow, the rise and fall of questions of economic security, students graduating from universities not being able to find jobs, seeking meaningful work, churches who are declining in number, losing all cultural impact. And we haven't even begun to talk about this wonderful circus called the presidential election yet. I mean, 2016 has been quite a year for many people, and it's easy to move into despair. Change is all around us, swirling, difficult things, difficult questions. And we could retreat into a posture of a rhododendron bush, to be planted firmly in our place, to be unmoving, to stay where we're at, and just kind of be there in front of a text that is before us. But that is not what we are called to be. As we see very, very clearly as we look at Scripture, there's a different path. So here's what I'd like to suggest. Justice is the shape of the gospel in our time. Justice is the shape of the gospel in our time. And to put a finer point on it that I'll be looking through as we look at our movement from creation, disruption, hope, and culmination is that as human beings crafted and called out by the living God, we are called to be just that, human beings crafted and called out by the, by the living God and not rhododendron bushes planted and still. We need to act for justice to be real. We have to act for justice to be real. So how has this been played out? Well, Scripture is filled with this articulation of the shape of God's word as justice. Going back to the prophets, we think of Deborah, the prophet and judge who administered justice, to the 8th century prophets who called Israel and Judah repeatedly to open their borders, to listen to the voices of the criminally marginalized, to give voice to the people who had been silenced 
and to open up and allow them to be cared for. And when they didn't, there was downfall in those kingdoms. We think about, in our own time, civil rights activists reminding us that the arc of history arcs and bends towards justice. That is the destination of all things. And we are on that arc with God is, is at our side. Jesus clearly articulates this call to reconciliation when Jesus stands in the temple, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, standing up and declaring this year that is before us is gonna be a year of promise to the poor, to the marginalized, and sitting down resolutely declaring his ministry now has begun of reconciliation and justice. And as Jesus walks and teaches in the gospels, those who sought to silence the voice of justice brought him before an unfair trial and crucifies our Lord who's trying to give voice to this. And in doing so, wants to close off any access to justice in our time. But rather than closing it off, our Lord, as we sang this morning, has his arms opened on a cross, held open in an openness of embrace to say that the closing off of justice will never occur now that he has come. That through his blood we are cleansed, we're empowered, and with the pouring out of his Holy Spirit that comes after his resurrection power, justice will happen in this world. The kingdom of God has come, and nothing is going to stop it. The arms of love are now open for you, and we are empowered to move in this way. And that's where we're at. So the cross of Christ gives us freedom to move in acts of justice as we see. So where have we come from? Now, this is the great thing about this morning. Getting a whiteboard when you're a professor is like Christmas time. So this is quite exciting. So um, first of all, let's start with creation. How are we meant to be on this question of justice? Where are we supposed to go on this? Well, going back to the Genesis accounts, as we've done, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we are told that human beings are created along with the rest of creation in the image and likeness of God. In the image and likeness of God, you who sit here, you who are listening online, are people created in the very image of God, and therefore we are the ambassadors of God's glory into the world. In your very sinew, in the blood that pumps through your veins, you are now the sign and seal of God's glory for the world. The face that you have, the hands that you have, the feet that you have, are the walking articulation that God is not dead, that God is very much alive that God is working and moving, and this has always been the plan for you as human beings. As beautiful, unique people, you are the articulation of justice to the world, and you have the capacity that in the image of God. Yet we are also called to be the likeness of God as well, not merely to inhabit it within ourselves, but to articulate it in our likeness. For the image is what we are called to, the likeness is what we do with it. And oftentimes that's the break for many of us as human beings, as we fall down on our call to likeness. And we forget how we are and how we are made. In the original Italian fairy tale of Pinocchio by Carlo Collati, this wonderful story that many of you are familiar with, but in the original Italian fairy tale of Pinocchio, it has this wonderful opening bit in the very first part of the story, which is this. Once upon a time there was a king, my little readers will say at once. No children, you're wrong. Once upon a time there was a piece of wood a piece of wood. What happens is in creation, we think that we are born to be kings apart from anybody else, to rule. And this moves us towards disruption as we take things onto ourselves, forgetting that we are part of creation, scooped out of the earth, life breathed into us and giving us our sense of purpose and power. 
We are not kings apart from the king who called us to be stewards of this creation. We are created beings. And in the disruption of the garden, we lose our identity. And in that loss, as we hear in Genesis 3-9, this faded moment, when the human beings have trusted in their own reason, have turned from God's plan, have listened to the serpent, and have lifted themselves literally away from creation, hidden in trees, we hear this question, where are you? Where are you right now? This question of location is the first question that God asks of humanity. The first audible question we are asked, and I would say it is the question we are asked every day of our lives. Where are you right now? Where are you? And John Perkins, uh, the civil rights activist and theologian who does a lot of work with us at the university and has written extensively on reconciliation, says that one of the necessary parts of justice is relocation. Relocation. Where are you in relation to your neighbor? Where are you in relation to your friends? Who do you surround yourself with? Are you willing to relocate your life spiritually, economically, and physically for the sake of justice? Will you open up your location to include others? And the where are you question becomes key. Location also moves us into a sense of individualism. And as we hear in Genesis 4, 9... After humanity has moved out of the garden and Cain and Abel come into being, Cain asks the fateful question, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? The further disruption is one not just of location, but am I connected to you? Are you and I neighbors? Are we to care for each other? Do I have any responsibility for you anymore? Is the priority of our lives to be individuals or is it to be the church, to be the community of God, to be bound together in ways that are just palpable. In the Psalms, Psalm 8 declares that all of creation declares God's glory. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. From the very heights of heaven all the way to the very depths of the sea, the entirety of creation is just yelling of God's glory and grace. But in verse 4, what are human beings that you're even mindful of us? What are human beings that you're even mindful of us? Human beings move out of creation and become a big question mark, a variable. Something not fully asserting in their place as far as alongside God, not seeing themselves as part of creation, seeing themselves as separated, individuals, things built with ego, who have freedom from things, but what are we freedom for things, or for our neighbor, or for the world? This freedom and this running has left us with a big question about our own identity and what we're supposed to do in the world. And this painful disruption of God's plan leaves us in this sense of loss and wandering in our world. And so where does that take us? Well, the pathway of hope is there for us. Constantly, relentlessly, with great passion, God pursues us no matter how far we run. Though we leave the garden, God goes with us. Though we leave each other, God still binds us together in our brokenness and calls us back into unity. Though we 
break down as far as nations, though we break down as communities, though we lose our economic status, though all of these things happen, God still pursues through the prophets, through the judges, through the silence that we have when God is silent after Malachi to the annunciation that unto you a child is born. Emmanuel, God with us, God has never left. And this hope continues on. And fully realized in the power of Christ's cross, we are given the hope that passes all understanding. We are not deserted by God in the quest of justice. This world, as bad as it may seem, is not abandoned by the living God. And one of the great testimonies of the truth that it's not abandoned is you. (laughs) The church is still here and has a job to do and has an articulation of this call to justice that's been given over and over and over again and is ready to be received and ready to be lived out for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this hope comes to us on the call to justice in two pathways I want to suggest this morning that are important for us to hear because part of the challenge of justice for churches has been infighting as far as how to get it done. How do we answer the question of racial tensions in this country? How do we answer the question of economic injustice? How do we get there? How do we get this work done? Well, in the scriptures, we have these two pathways. We have the story of the Emmaus Road, and we have the story of the road to Damascus. In, in Luke chapter 24, we have this journey of two individuals who are going along and Jesus has passed away. They've lost all hope in the coming of the Messiah because the one they thought promised has obviously not fulfilled what their dreams were. And another person comes along and begins walking with them on the journey, slowly, methodically, asking questions, creating dialogue, reasoning together about what needs to be done next. And in this conversation on the Emmaus Road, they are given this pathway by which they go back to the scriptures again, reread them. Maybe I missed something. Maybe there's something that needs to be seen. As we hear in Luke 24, they go back to the Torah. They go to the writings and the law and to the wisdom and the prophets. And they reread them again and realize, oh, oh yes, there's a lot more going on than we have thought. We need to recover these things. See them for what they are. And through Jesus' teaching, as they wander, as they walk together, and they culminate in the great meal of the breaking of the bread and the wine, they're given a new task as a church that is building around this discernment. Now, in Acts chapter 9, we have Paul, former executor of Christians, tormentor of those who are in the margins who is given a blinding bolt from above, blinds him instantaneously, and the voice of God in Jesus rumbles into his ears and gives him a commission. It's a supernatural encounter of power that he gets. And in this power encounter he gets from God, his eyes are restored and he has a commission to be the Apostle Paul, to establish the church, to teach, and to move with great activism and power. In both of these articulations of hope and justice are two pathways that are both in our scriptures. We have the steady, reflective discernment that brings us to a place of justice, and we also have the activism, the explosive activism of necessary action that it calling forth to move. In our churches today, there are often disagreements about which path is the right one. You're not an activist enough. You are just spending too much time in the scriptures. You've got to get moving. We've got to get this question moving forward now. 
Or you're going too fast. You're, 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 you're being brash. You need to relax. You need to kind of go back and reflect. These clashing attempts at getting at justice need not be at war with one another. We don't need to marginalize the activist, nor do we need to marginalize those people who are waiting and discerning and studying. Both need each other. We need deep reflection. We need activism. We need both. And the canon of scripture puts both of these here, and they need to work together for hope and justice to happen in our time. For deep and abiding change in a world fraught with pain and loss, we need communities to discern together and to act and not be just waiting around for something to happen. We need both. And this leads us to culmination, which the case study I want to use for us this morning is found in Luke chapter 10. And if you have your Bibles, feel free to open them and follow along as we take a look at this together to kind of look at the culmination case study of justice that Jesus articulates in relation to this teacher of the law. As Jesus encounters this teacher of the law in Luke chapter 10, and you get, begin with verse 25, the teacher of the law asks this fairly benign question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns it back on the teacher and he says this, what do you see in the scriptures and how do you read it? How do you read it? How do you see the text? What do you see in the text? And the teacher of the law quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. These two passages represent two sections of teachings of the law that would have been known by many people. And as he lifts them up as they are articulated before Jesus, Jesus says, well done. Absolutely great answer. Really good. And then the lawyer turns to Jesus and doubles down on his response. Now he's been encouraged about getting the answer right. On the question of who is your neighbor, he asks that question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now really what's behind this question, what he's really phrasing by asking who is my neighbor is this. What is the limit of my responsibility? What is the limit of my responsibility? I have students when I give an essay in class who will raise their hand and say, uh, how many pages is this supposed to be? Uh, how many footnotes do I need to use? How, how much work do I need to do? Which is this question of what is the bare minimum I need to do to get across that line? <laughs> What's the bare minimum I need to do to get across that line? It's a fair question in a busy life, in a busy time. It's a fair question to ask. But Jesus then says, okay, you really want to know what the limit of your responsibility is? Now let's show you what the essay actually is that you're going to submit for me. So Jesus then begins this parable of the Samaritan. And what we have here are two priests who come upon a man who has been beaten and tortured by robbers, as we hear, left in a ditch to die. And we have a Levite and we have another priest that are coming. What Jesus does, which is really brilliant, is he takes the text off the page and he says, you know what? The text is vital, but the living word is what I'm looking for. And the living word then jumps off the page. The scroll becomes, becomes a person in the Levitical priest and literally now has hands, feet, and faces. 
And this, both these priests walk around the far side of this person left destitute in the ditch, not wanting to get dirty, not wanting to get touched, not wanting to get contaminated, I don't know who this person is, all of this kind of stuff. How many of us, in the way that we approach texts on justice, try to ring fence the conversation of that text and try to protect it from getting dirty, worry about it too much getting misinterpreted so we don't even act? We can treat these texts and the Bible itself akin to the Declaration of Independence in Washington, D.C. that is kept in bulletproof glass with a special type of gas inside to keep it from deteriorating that will sink underneath the earth in case of a nuclear attack just to preserve a piece of paper. Just to preserve a piece of paper. As vital to our history as that piece of paper is, it is what's behind it that makes us a people. It always has been. And so it is with the scriptures. If we treat it as merely a scroll to be protected, not to get dirty, not to get involved in the world that we have, then we are missing what the prophets themselves were doing with them. The prophets were picking up scrolls and literally eating them. They would fly over their heads as we hear in Zechariah. They moved into the world. And so it is in the text. And Jesus shows them, why are you trying to protect these texts from getting dirty? What are you so afraid of, of getting involved in the world as acts of justice? And then the third person appears, a Samaritan. Now, the, the, the term good Samaritan that's been used about this is kind of an oxymoron in the way this is read, like jumbo shrimp. It, being good and a Samaritan was something that they didn't even think of in these times. For to be a Samaritan, to be racially isolated and away from what Israel thought was pure, was key to this understanding this text. To be a Samaritan was to be racially other to be someone scorned, made jokes of, to be parodied, to be pushed away. All the embodiments of marginalized voices comes in the picture of the Samaritan who rides in on a donkey, gets himself dirty by scooping this person out of a ditch, taking him to care, providing his own money for their caring, and says he will come back to make sure that they are okay. In the Samaritan, we see an example of mercy and the limits of responsibility go far beyond than that which the lawyer had thought of. And so when at the end of the passage, Jesus asks him which of the three did right. And the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, do likewise. We could draw the curtain now in this sermon and kind of say, okay, let's all be Samaritans. That's traditionally how people have understood this sermon more and more, right? The idea that basically the goal of this thing is to get you on a donkey, riding around, finding people in ditches, taking them to places of care, which is a noble and necessary part of justice. But it is injustice if we leave it as a two-dimensional reading of the text. If it's just about being the Samaritan, if it's just understanding ourselves in that way, then we're missing a three-dimensional reading of justice that Jesus wants to teach us this morning, and it is this. Not only are we to be Samaritans in the story, we're also to avail ourselves to be the person in the ditch because that's the hard teaching that the religious leaders thought of because the person in the ditch is the one who receives mercy. The person in the ditch is the one who receives salvation and help and healing. And the person who receives can't possibly be me, right? Because isn't the goal of our lives to be benevolent, to be together, to be the dispensers of good things? I mean, why would I need anything? Justice requires humility for you to understand 
the fullness of what God is doing. If you have nothing that you need, then how can God give you anything? If you have no need to be healed, then what does God have to offer you today? And when God sends emissaries of help to you with new texts to read, new voices to hear, new faces to see, to teach you today what it is to be the gospel in the 21st century, will you allow them to bend down and pick you up and to show you the face of God today? Who is the Samaritan who is going to come and lift us up today? Who will move into our neighborhood to teach us a new ministry that we have never thought of before? Who are the voices that we need to hear that we have forgotten? This is the question at the end of this text. One of the things that I think that Bethany has before us is an opportunity to really embody the power of this passage. Because in our neighbors around us, both locally and globally, Bethany has a tradition of responding in justice in powerful ways. Who is also teaching us what those new voices are? Who are the new people who show up and are we ready to receive them when they come? So I'd like to show you a short video uh, of how one church responded to a new neighbor who moved in and how it became an act of justice and how they learned something about themselves by allowing someone to find them in their ditch and in their place to show them maybe a face of God in a way they hadn't expected. So let's watch this video together. I'll never forget the morning that I saw an article about a group of Muslims who had bought 30 acres and were planning to build a complex. And this complex, this land is going to be on Humphrey Road. When I saw that, my stomach kind of tightened up. They were going to be right across the street from us. My mind was just reeling and I felt that, that ignorance and that fear. So I prayed. I said, well, what are we supposed to do? The idea of Memphis Islamic Center started because we felt we needed a family life center, a place for people to pray and play, to socialize, and have a sense of community. It is a difficult time for Muslims in America. We did not expect to be welcomed. We thought we have to work hard. Stand before God. They were a long way from building anything on the land. I don't know how to reach out to these people at all. Don't know any of these folks. So I thought, well, let's put up a banner. And one day we were driving by and we see a banner. And that banner says, Heartsong Church welcomes the Memphis Islamic Center to the neighborhood. And I realized that what I was being led to do was find a way to love these people. There were people who were just terribly upset. Me and my wife both were thinking about leaving the church because I, I just did not accept what was going on. Lord, we are so humbled that you would choose us. I went to Pastor Steve and asked him, I said, what, what are we doing? He told me to uh, read the Gospels. When I read through those Gospels and I figured out it was a, it was a sickness in me. That was the problem. <laughs> in a sense, I was the problem. I was the problem. <laughs> what was going on with the world today? I was the problem. <laughs> and then we started building. 
The month of fasting, the month of Ramadan, was supposed to be our grand opening day where we start praying here, and it was clear that we were not going to have our hall ready. We got a call, and Bashar said, we just wondered if we could use your building for our prayers. In case we don't get our permit in time. We may use it for a few nights, and, and I'm praying we don't have to. And I said, okay, uh, you pray that way. I'm going to pray that you have to come in at least for a few days. Because I just think it would be great for our people. It would be great for your people. Instead of using the room for a few nights, we ended up spending the entire month of Ramadan at Hartsong Church. Ramadan brought us much closer. People started knowing each other on a personal level. We had done coat drives and food drives, and close to 9-11, we do a blood drive together. One year it'll be at Hartsong, the other year it'll be at MIC. So Muslims and Christians are giving blood together. We decided to do a combined Thanksgiving dinner. Every spring we get together and Hartsong folks will come over here and we'll have the spring picnic. It became a movement. I would have never thought that I would be friends with Muslims. Right here. And I love it. It's kind of like my world got bigger. How's everybody doing today? Would you cheer louder if you're having fun? We are better congregation now. We are better people because of this friendship with Heart Song. What's the next event? The biggest surprise to me is that now my life is so very changed. It's an amazing friendship that I can't imagine having missed out on. In Jesus' parable, there are two people who draw intimately close to the person in the ditch. There is the Good Samaritan, but there is also the robber, the robber who comes and takes. And we need to draw close and allow draw close the people who are going to show us the face of God, not the dominant culture that's going to rob and take our identity, but the people who are coming and want to draw close to us and show us the way and the path of justice. 2016 is not the worst year in history. I think 2016 is the year of jubilee for us. It is the year to declare the Lord's favor. It is declared to do this good work. It is putting up bouncy castles so our kids can play together and show that the world is not a place of hatred and despair, that we do not hate each other, that there's a possibility that the gospel is actually true <laughs> and that we can show it and not just talk about it, not just like rhododendrons stare at it that actually be the hands and feet of Jesus. So as we sing together, as we proclaim God's glory, as we sing this creed together, surrounded by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may it be your prayer of this. Where is justice for you today? And where is justice for Bethany today? Let's continue worshiping God.